The next, uh, the next speaker uh, is uh, a, a friend of this course, a friend of ours uh, for, uh, for many years, Joe Aaron. Uh, Joe is professor of medicine uh, in the state uh, that's now fighting the government over LGBT uh, exclusion. So uh, might want to talk about, uh, about what, you and, uh, what North Carolina is doing, Joe. Uh, <laughs> along the way, tell us about ARVs. Thanks. Because I wasn't sure whether I could use the bathroom here or not. <laughs> I've, been, I've been holding it for a day and a half. <laughs> so if I dance around here, it's only because of that. Um, I, I guess I, I need to apologize for North Carolina. I, I think it's horrible um, and discriminatory and unfortunate. And, and I actually don't believe, um, as the legislator has said, it's the will of the people. I think that's actually not true. And if it was ever put to a vote in North Carolina, it, it wouldn't actually stand. But unfortunately, we're held hostage to um, uh, 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 basically, I think, um, racist, sexist, and, and genderist um, uh, legislators and a, and a governor who's unwilling to stand up to them. Um, so I'm going to talk about antiretroviral therapy, hopefully a slightly more uplifting topic. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to be here. I love Chicago. I love walking around. It's such a vibrant city. You guys are really, I think, lucky to, to live here. Um, I, hopefully, I can manage this. Okay, that, I have two title slides. Um, not, not managing very well. Um, just slow. Um, those are my disclosures. And then these are my, can you just give me my next slide? Um, maybe, maybe I'm not touching it in the right spot. These are our goals. Um, I'm, I'm gonna talk about uh, reasons for initiation of, of ART as soon as possible. I'm gonna describe some potential advantages of some of the newer but available uh, antiretroviral therapy. And then I'm also going to um, uh, talk about drug resistance. There we go. Um, so I, th I think first of all, just to remind people of the goals of antiretroviral therapy, right? Um, we focus on numbers, we focus on below detectable, but of course what we're trying to do is preserve people's health, right? Either preserve it or restore it. So that's the most important thing. And, and we know now that, that we do that by suppressing viral replication. That, that's, uh, that's how we get there. But now I think we really have to think about also, we have to minimize, try to bring to zero the, the short and long-term adverse effects of our drugs. Um, and that's critical w when we talk about how long we're going to need to treat people with HIV. So that 25-year-old African-American man who gets diagnosed in your clinic and then has to be treated will probably need to be treated for, for 60 years. Or a child, you know, that we, we um, uh, learned in our San Francisco course that, that there, there, you could count the number of infants infected in the U.S. almost on your hand, um, or at least maybe hands and toes every year, but that child will, might need to be treated for 80 years. Um, and we need to have therapies that are accessible to everyone, so not, not just um, uh, you know, people that are able to take a pill every day and are well insured. And then if we can do all this, then we're, we're likely to improve um, uh, transmission uh, to others and, and, and 
uh, this afternoon, Trip will, will talk about some of our, our new drugs and, and, and where those are going. I may not be, maybe I'm not hitting this in the right spot or something, or pointing it in the right direction. Okay, so we have big goals, right? Um, I think probably everybody here is aware of our goals. We want to get 90% of every people who are positive diagnosed. We want to get 90% of those people in care and 90% of those people who are in care on therapy and suppressed. Um, and actually, the, the last 90% is actually where, where we can do it the best. Kristen's going to make it better for me. Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Oh, yeah, it worked. It worked. It worked. Okay. Oh, dear. Okay. All right, good. No. Uh-oh. There we go. Um, so, and if we do that, the modelers tell us that we'll actually have a reduction in, in new HIV diagnoses and HIV-related deaths. And so far uh, in the U.S., uh, I mean in the world, um, almost 16 million people are on antiretroviral therapy. So how many people in the world are estimated to be infected? Who knows? 37, 38, something like that. So we're, we're, it's remarkable that we're almost halfway there. And, and, and I, I work in Malawi, which is maybe, you know, kind of vying with Haiti and a couple other places to be the poorest country in the world. And they have almost a million people on, on therapy. It's, it's truly remarkable. Um, So what about starting therapy early? So we'll start at the start, and this is the START study. I think probably everybody is aware of this study, but it, it's basically that starting therapy at the time of diagnosis, even if the CD4 cell count is greater than 500, results in a substantial clinical benefit. So a reduction in clinical uh, events by more than 50%. So the blue line is what's called delayed, and the red line is, is immediate therapy. And these are serious events. Um, uh, Connie mentioned some of them, but they, they are serious adverse events, not just you know, a thrush or some uh, esophageal candidiasis that a week of fluconazole takes care of. It's a little quick. <laughs> um, so uh, what I want to point out, too, is that um, how successful antiretroviral therapy, who, the, who did the START study here? There must be sites that did the START study, right? So you could choose almost any drug, right? And then if the patient didn't like the drug, you could choose some other drug. And what you can see in the bottom right is the red is the people going on therapy. First of all, people got on therapy very rapidly, which was the point, and they suppressed very rapidly. And when people had lots of options, you can see over a five-year period, literally 95% of people on the study were on therapy and suppressed. And, and when, when therapy is available and accessible and, and managed by people who are capable, it's very successful. And I think, um, Connie, uh, uh, the other thing about the study that to mention, I'll just quickly on this slide, is that 60, almost 70% of the adverse events or uh, uh, clinical events, sorry, occurred when patients were above, uh, participants were above 500 CD4 cells. So it's not because people delayed. In fact, many of people in the delayed arm started therapy well before 350, which is what the protocol specified. Uh, and as I think Connie pointed out, there, there were um, uh, substantial reductions in serious illnesses like cancer. So there were three, almost three times as many cancers in the delayed arm as in the immediate arm. So that's obviously critical. And then um, this summer, we also heard from Mike Cohen, um, who's a 
a Chicago guy from, from uh, way, way back, even, well, maybe the same as Paul, way, way, way back there. <laughs> um, and uh, he showed us, this is 052, these are the final results. Um, hopefully they'll be published soon. But basically it showed us two things. One, antiretroviral therapy is not magic. Um, so there were people on antiretroviral therapy who transmitted, but they were all people that had a measurable viral load. You had to have a suppressed viral load in order to um, successfully uh, limit transmission. And no person in this study who was undetectable transmitted to another person. That it just it wasn't observed in this very large uh, uh, partnered uh, study. And the other thing which frequently becomes a question, and um, we may hear about it this afternoon, is, well, um, uh, you know, sh I have a, uh, partners um, uh, that are discordant, should the uh, uninfected person be on PrEP, for example, if the infected person is suppressed? And not surprisingly, within the study, there was a lot of unlinked transmissions. So uh, obviously, you have to think about that when you're uh, trying to protect people that are uh, uninfected. So, oh, um, I guess I lost a couple of slides. That's okay. <laughs> keep, keep going. This this is um, act. Well, okay. This is the cascade in Australia. The Australians do actually pretty well. And I know in New York, actually, they they do New York City. They do very well. In North Carolina, we we don't do quite as well. But but you can see that the drop off really is is typically between um, uh, being diagnosed with HIV and and receiving treatment. One issue with all these cascades is what's really the denominator? How do we know how many people in Chicago, for example, actually have HIV? And if that denominator is overestimated, then all these numbers look terrible. If the denominator is underestimated, then the numbers are worse than, than, um, uh, than predicted. So these are, this is the US cascade, and we have this kind of dramatic drop-off between diagnosed and engaged in care, and I think actually um, it'll be great when these numbers kind of get updated because I think we're doing uh, better than that. And if you look in um, how can antiretroviral in therapy impact this, well, number one, we know that people who get treated actually are more likely to stay engaged in care. Uh, and then, obviously, when we, people are provided ART, we actually do a really good job of suppressing them. So if you look in, this is from the um, uh, <coughs> NA Accord, which is a large North American uh, observational study. Uh, and actually, uh, in, in this particular uh, observational study, there are over 100,000 individuals in the data set. And, and basically, if you're prescribed ART, over 90% are suppressed. So, and I think if no matter what clinic you look at, we're all approaching that. I was talking to Trip, my brother Trip, last night. And, and you know his clinic is around 89 or 90 percent, and in New York they're they're close to that. In Chapel Hill, we're we're maybe a little bit less, but 88 percent. So it really is quite successful if we can get people on therapy. The other thing I think that's important to point out here is there is a treatment gap, right? So um, only 84 percent of the people in care are actually on therapy. Why is that? What what what's preventing us for keeping? or putting people on therapy? And I think that's an important question, and, and, and perhaps um, there are ways to uh, address that with, with newer forms of therapy or newer ways to deliver therapy, which I think Tripp will talk a little bit about. So why is ART 
so successful if it started, and that's because our therapy is simpler, it's well tolerated, the PK is very good. I mean, and, and it, there's no way that in our clinic that 90% of our patients are taking 90% of their pills. It just isn't happening. Um, or of those 100,000 patients, there's no way that in those 100,000. And I think the reason our therapies are successful is because they are tolerant of humans. You know, that people miss doses. People forget to get their refills. I, you know, I've certainly had the experience multiple times of people saying, you know, I didn't get my refill, doc. I ran out of meds a week ago. I'm so sorry. I can't believe it. And then you get their viral load, and it's undetectable. Um, I think it's, it's because our medicines are so, so good. These are data from our clinic, and, and I'm going to argue that we're shifting into an integrase inhibitor era. Uh, and this is just the new starts in our clinic um, over the last, you know, almost uh, two uh, decades. And, and purple is, is someone, patients with uh, newly entering the clinic who are treatment naive, uh, starting on an integrase inhibitor. And you can see in 2012, it was only about 15%. Uh, 2013, it was almost uh, uh, over 70%. And, and in 2014, it's over 80%. And there are other data from other areas that, that show very uh, similar. And not only are, are people uh, getting started on, on integrase uh, inhibitors, uh, but uh, the persistence of therapy. This is a topic, I don't know, Mike is probably still on a, um, a conference call, Mike Sag, but he's talked a lot about persistence. And what he means by that is if someone's starting on treatment, how long do they actually stay on that treatment? Um, and I, when he first published his stuff from UAB, I think it was a, on average about a year that people stayed on their initial therapy. These are data, the blue line uh, is the time from starting an integrase inhibitor-based therapy to when it was either discontinued, and here discontinued means two weeks, if, if you've interrupted for two weeks, you're discontinued, or you change for virologic failure, or you change for some other reason, and basically now out to six years, we still haven't hit the median yet. Um, so so uh, integrase inhibitor therapy is, is very well tolerated in it and, and persistent. And a lot of the loss in, for example, uh, boosted PI, which is the red line, and not in the beginning, but uh, over time, is actually going to simpler uh, therapy, including integrase inhibitors. And then in a, in a study in the Scenix cohort, which is another cohort uh, that, that, that Chad and others participate in, um, uh, actually being on an integrase inhibitor was strongly associated with persistent suppression. Um, and this is a, a poster by uh, Simone from, uh, she's from the University of Washington, Seattle. But there still is a treatment gap. There's an issue. We still need better therapy. There's issues of stigma, substance abuse, mental health, access to clinic, transportation. Maybe that's not as big of a problem in a big city, but it is in North Carolina. And also clinic capacity. Um, there are patients that are intolerant of current therapies. And and it's remarkable that, you know, we still need to deal with renal, cardiovascular, liver toxicity, some of the things Connie talked about. It's remarkable how little we know about safety of many of our drugs and, and pregnancy. And I know Susan is, is very interested in that. Um, we had a case um, in one of our other meetings, and, and, and it got like, well, what can we actually give to a pregnant woman, especially if she's not very tolerant of, of boosted PIs, for example, or has trouble with twice-daily therapy? 
Therapy options for infants and children are remarkably limited. We need better options there. And then there's the life chaos, and we're all, I think, worried about um, our patients as they age and, and drug interactions. And, and finally, we, we all deal with or live with the, the uh, HIV resistance, or at least the fear of resistance. So things are, are getting better. Um, there's continued improvement in the classes of drugs. I think we all are appreciative of, of dolutegravir, which is an unboosted once-daily integrase inhibitor. Um, I'm going to talk uh, quite a bit about TAF. Uh, Tripp seeded TAF to me. He said I could talk about TAF. He's going to talk about other uh, new agents, but I think TAF is an important uh, drug. Um, it's got a smaller milligram dose. It can be used in renal dysfunction, and, and it may have some activity against resistant variants, though, though that's really kind of unknown. And then there's this kind of urge to study two-drug therapy, and I think Tripp will talk a little bit about that. So this is my first question. I hope I can do it right. Um, I'm interested to know how you will manage your patients who are on TDF-containing regimens. So all your different TDF-containing regimens. And one is you'll continue TDF uh, if the patients are stable without side effects. Two is I will switch all my TDF patients to TAF-containing regimens. Or three, I will prioritize uh, specific patients to switch. And four, I'm not sure. So I'm going to hit this once, and a little clock should come up. Didn't come up. I'll try again. Okay. Oh, there it is. Go. Vote. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. And they're always right. Is that our theme, Kristen? We're going to do like TV show theme songs? Oh, great. Mike Seigel, love it. So uh, this is actually almost identical to what people in San Francisco said. Basically, most people were either going to prioritize um, or just switch everybody. And I think those people who are prioritizing are likely to get to everybody. The one group that I'm not quite sure what I'm going to do with are my patients who are very happily, happy on fixed-dose combination of Favrin's TDF-FTC because there's no simple switch. You actually have to change both. You have to change the anchor drug, too. Uh, many people are moving away from a Favrin, so that's not a big deal. But, but I still, in my patients, say, oh, I like this medicine. I'm fine on it. I don't really need to switch. Uh, I, I'm thinking about how I'm going to manage that. So, so this is, um, these are data from uh, uh, David Wool um, and Paul Sachs. This, these are the data comparing uh, ECF-TAF, so Elvitegavir, Kobe, FTC, TAF, versus ECF-TDF, head-to-head, um, uh, -head, randomized, blinded, uh, placebo-controlled trial. And what you can see, and that, now these are the 96-week data. So, so these were just published in, in J-AIDS, literally, I think, last week or the week before, um, basically showing that over time now, in, in terms of virologic efficacy, there's really not much difference. TAF is, is not that much better. Um, uh, uh, TDF is, is obviously a very good therapy. Numerically, TAF is slightly better. Um, maybe there are a few more discontinuations on, on TDF, uh, but, but that's obviously not statistically significantly different. Um, and uh, resistance emergence, there was some hope, including me, I thought perhaps because of the really high concentrations that uh, TAF gets inside the cell, that TAF gets uh, tenofovir diphosphate, which is actually the active drug, very high concentrations within lymphocytes, I thought perhaps there'd be less resistance emergence. But they're, they're exactly the same. It's low, actually. It's quite low, but they're exactly the same. So that's not an advantage uh, of TAF. Um, 
But what is an advantage is, one, there's less proteinuria. So we're, we're, we, we know that there are less proximal tubular effects of TAF. Now, does that mean there's going to be less long-term renal disease? It's possible, but we don't know that. I think that's critical. We don't know it. I, I think it's possible and maybe even plausible. Uh, but these proximal tubule effects reverse or, or happen very quickly. Um, so um, it strikes me that it, it's not actually, you know, uh, uh, that TDF is not actually damaging or killing proximal tubule cells. They're, they're probably um, disrupting function somehow. And then the other thing that I think is, oh, darn. The other thing that I think is, <laughs> this is like a patient's thing. Um, the other thing that I think is quite clear is that there is an advantage to bone loss, at least as measured by DEXA scans. So, so yellow is the TDF-containing fixed-dose combination. Uh, 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 purple, I guess that is, is the um, uh, TAF-containing. And you can see that uh, if you look for all ages, um, there, there's a substantially smaller uh, decline in, um, in bone density with, with TAF. And if you look at younger people, um, you also see a substantially smaller uh, decline, uh, and, and maybe even um, uh, slightly more of a difference, though, though it's really about the same. So, so there is an advantage to TAF, I think, in bone density. Um, okay, here we go. Okay, and then um, if you switch from TDF to TAF, you get a similar advantage. Again, um, the last set of bars on the right is, is a switch from, from uh, uh, TDF uh, fixed dose combination with alvitegravir. You can see virologically people remain suppressed. All the way uh, to uh, the right is the switch off of uh, Favrin's to ECF-TAF, so maybe there's a bit of an advantage to going from um, a Favrin's fixed dose combination to, to a TAF combination. Uh, but basically, virologically, things are pretty stable and obviously very good, uh, 96 97% when, when you switch. Um, you can see here's the improvement. So you switch off of TAF, there's actually improvement in bone density, and there was also an improvement in proximal tubule function. Uh, but we, again, we don't know about long-term renal function. We also know, and this is a single-arm study, where uh, individuals that had creatinine clearances between 30 and 70 uh, were allowed to switch to a TAF-containing regimen. And you can see over about a two-year period, their estimated GFR, so it's not median change, it's actually the median uh, EGFR uh, actually remains stable, and there are even a few patients who had an a, a estimated GFR uh, 30 or greater who, when they at screening, when they entered the study, were a little bit less. You can see it's stable, um, and there were no um, uh, Fanconi's events or no um, uh, uh, tubular injury events in this particular study, but again, the sample sizes are relatively small, especially in the, the um, uh, less than 40 group, um, but it looks uh, promising. Okay, another question. Um, have you used two-drug therapy, and, and Tripp will be interested in this too, uh, uh, in, in caring for patients either as initial therapy or as a maintenance therapy? And what I mean by two drugs is like a boosted PI plus just 3TC or FTC, dalutegravir plus 3TC, FTC, or perhaps um, you know, an integrase plus an NNRTI, maybe that combination. So, so have you done it, yes or no?
So um, some people have, but most people haven't. I can say I haven't done it very often at all, um, though, though occasionally. And, and, and again, in the cases this might come up, there are maybe some situations where you want to stay away from both um, abacavir and uh, any tenofovir-containing regimen, and uh, uh, perhaps uh, a um, boosted PI or dilutator plus 3TC or FTC would be useful there. Uh, we know from the work of um, we know from the work of Pedro Kahn, uh, where he looked at lopinavir-ritonavir 3TC compared to lopinavir-ritonavir 3TC plus another nuke, and and looked at it over 96 weeks. That kind of remarkably, lopinavir-ritonavir 3TC was actually slightly better, um, though not quite reaching statistical significance, uh, than actually the lopinavir-ritonavir plus, plus two nukes. Now, to be fair, the second nuke was a little bit more likely to be zidovudine than tenofovir here. So uh, they're, 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 you can see there's a, a difference in the uh, discontinuation rate um, uh, if you look at the columns all the way to the right. Um, and then I'll let Tripp talk about um, dolutegravir 3TC, which has been uh, described uh, by Pedro Kahn, and, and, and he'll talk about this in more detail this afternoon. And then this is a study that's looking at cabotegravir plus ropivirine pills. This is pills, not injectable. That's going to come later. Um, but what it's talking about is a non-PI-based two-drug regimen to maintain suppression. And there's a large study, two large studies, comparing dolutegravir Ropivirine, so not cabotegravir ropivirine, but dolutegravir ropivirine for suppression. They're called the SWORD studies, and we should hear about those results probably around this time uh, a year from now. Again, a, a, a nucleoside sparing and a PI sparing long-term suppressive regimen with a little tiny pill or little tiny pills. Okay, so unfortunately, resistant HIV will always be with us. We have to give people four to eight decades of therapy depending on when they're started. Uh, and, and whether we, we actually cure people, as, as Alan pointed out. Um, in our world, I think we have lots of people who were previously exposed to suboptimal treatment who are still in our care uh, that have resistant virus. Um, and in the developing or, or uh, resource-limited world, there isn't a lot of um, viral load monitoring, so they have a different problem. They, they have more selection of resistance um, uh, to a, a smaller number of classes. Um, so. How often in your practice do you see patients that have virologic rebound and resistance to one or more drugs in three or more classes? So in other words, I'm not talking about the person on um, you know, fixed uh, dose L-vitegravir that rebounds and has a 184V and, a, and an integrase mutation. I'm talking about at least resistance to three classes. So how often do you see that in your clinic? Once a week, once a month, once every six months, almost never. Go ahead and vote. Kristen's getting the easy ones out of the way before Mike Sag gets up here. Yeah, I, I'm, I, it, it is really uncommon, right, to see multi-class resistant patients who are actually taking their therapy and rebounding. So I, I think that's, un, in my experience, it's quite uncommon. And this is a study from Europe, but, but from the UK, but I think it's true in, in our, our setting too. These are uh, people on initial therapy. Uh, it happened to be uh, tenofovir-containing therapy, over no, almost 9,000 individuals looking over five years. 
and virologic failure occurred in less than 10% of the population, and any resistance mutation occurred in less than 5% of the population. So it just, it's just very uncommon. Though I do worry, because my, um, and we know what's the reason for this? Well, our therapies are really good in terms of resistance, uh, boosted PIs. This is over 3,000 patients from studies of boosted PIs, and, and only, only two documented occasions, occasions of, of, of uh, major PI resistance mutations, and both happen to be on atazanavir. Um, it's just uncommon. And we know with dolutegravir-based therapy, it's also uh, very uncommon, at least in the studies so far, uh, in treatment-naive patients. In fact, not only do you not see integrase mutations, but you're not seeing NRTI mutations either. Um, sorry. This is a study from British Columbia. Uh, uh, the big picture here, the top line is the prevalence of RT or PI resistance. Um, and it is going down over time, but, but obviously they see a lot of it. That bottom little blue line scraping along the bottom is the prevalence of integrase resistance in their population. And it's actually, um, uh, of all the samples that they did in, in 2015, it was 0.6% uh, of the samples that were tested for integrase resistance had integrase resistance. So it's obviously very uncommon. And even if you look at a low-barrier drug, like L-vitegravir, low-barrier drug, also very uncommon in all the studies of, of the uh, ECF-TAF, over 2,000 adults, uh, the number that actually had documented resistance is on the order of uh, 13, 14 out of 2,000. So even it is a low-barrier drug. If you have rebound, you'll you probably see some resistance, but, but rebound's uncommon. Though we do have this. This is what I worry about in my clinic, which is um, uh, finding viremic patients with multidrug resistance is uncommon, right? It's the very tip of the iceberg. I mean, you can barely see it. Um, on the other hand, I have a bunch of patients in my clinic that have multidrug resistance. They're just suppressed. They're on dolutegravir, etravirine, uh, boosted darunavir twice a day, and every time they come in, I'm like, please, please be undetectable, because I'm not sure what I'm going to do if they're not, um, and Trip is going to tell us what we're going to do if they're not. But So we, we do have, there are people with multidrug resistance, they're just suppressed, and hopefully they'll stay that way. Um, uh, but they probably leak out a little bit over, over time. Um, so we can act, let's do this one quick because I'm running out of time. In the next five years, how many patients in your practice will actually need a new drug from a new class to treat resistant HIV-1? That you feel like you're not going to be able to handle it unless you actually have a new agent that works by a new mechanism. So go ahead and vote. Here's the story of a they really are getting the easy ones out of the way, Mike. <laughs> the tough ones are coming. Yeah, I, I, again, I am like totally with you on this. I, I think it would be uncommon. That's a big challenge for people, companies that want to develop these drugs because we'll probably need them. All of us will probably have one or two people that need them. But how do you study something that occurs in one or two people in, in you know, clinics all over the city? It's not easy. Uh, and then I'm just going to say resistance in the developing world is a different problem because people stay on their first line. They're not necessarily... Um, 
uh, monitored as well as we, we, we have it here in the U.S. And what they see is they just see a lot of NRTI and NNRTI mutations. And because they're on these nukes for a long period of time, they actually end up with two or more nuke mutations. And some of them end up with uh, tenofovir resistance. And about um, 13 or 14 percent in Mark Boyd's study um, actually had some of these really dinosaur type things like a, a, a 69 insertion or 151, which many of you are too young to even know about, and you don't even think about it. Um, you'll, uh, they're, they're, they're resistance complexes that lead to resistance to all nucleosides. Um, so, uh, and there was another study called Tenores um, that showed a very similar thing, and that if you looked at uh, patients who were failing in the developing world, especially in Southern Africa, about 60% or so uh, of people who were failing had some evidence of tenofovir resistance. So anyway, I'm, I'm done. I want to thank you for your attention. This is just to remind us that, that even though we think we're kind of where we need to be with HIV, uh, every 10, 8 to 10 years, things change. And I think we're now in an integrase era. And I think after you hear trip talk, we, we might be moving towards a, maybe a long-acting era, hopefully, at least for some patients. And I just want to thank you for your attention. Great, Joe. Thank you. Um, do we have any questions from the audience? The answer is yes. So right away. Uh, so patient um, on TDF, uh, would you recommend a bone, uh, a bone density screening of those patients, and would that be a factor in deciding what to do? Yeah, um, that's a really good question. I think that... Um, First of all, it looks like the, the new formulations are going to be cost neutral, so there's not a huge barrier to, to switching. I, I think that there are pretty nice recommendations from Todd Brown in a group on who should get a DEXA scan. Um, uh, women uh, uh, who are postmenopausal, like you might otherwise, and men over the age of 50, especially if they have risks like alcohol, previous steroids. So I, I wouldn't do it uh, to help me make my decision. Um, uh, uh, I, I think if you're worried enough about it, then, then you probably should switch. So another uh, question, I think I know the answer to this, but what do you think about baseline uh, integrase uh, uh, resistance testing? Yeah, I, I th that's a great question. I think in general it's probably not necessary because we're in an era of less than 1%, but if nobody's doing it, then we're not going to know if we're ever out of that era of less than 1%, and the CDC is not doing it as intensively as, as before. So I think if people are doing it, we need to work together to, to make sure we start collecting those data. Um, and so uh, if, if it impacts your budget and it's going to limit people you can treat or uh, other useful tests you can do, I wouldn't do it. Um, I do know that some of the clinics in North Carolina have negotiated uh, with LabCorp and are getting the, the uh, uh, assay where you can get all three at a price that's very similar to the, to, for the two drug. Uh, so uh, we don't do that at our site because we weren't as good at negotiating, but in Charlotte and Raleigh, they actually get the a full RT, protease, and integrase uh, as one test, um, or at least one billing code. I think they have to do two separate tests, but it's one billing code. So uh, people are interested in other ways of following renal function. Can you comment on cystatin um, as another way to follow these? Yeah, I think that's a... Um, uh, an interesting issue, you have one concern is cystatin C is an um, inflammatory marker. So in people prior to treatment, um, it will be higher. 
um, in most patients than at baseline. So if you treat them, it looks like their uh, cystatin creatinine clearance is actually improving. So that might be um, uh, not completely accurate. I actually think if it's available, you can follow it. And it probably is um, more useful, especially if you're using cobacistat or, or dolutegravir, because you're going to get that you know 0.2 increase. So if you can get it and it's easy, I, I would only I would urge you not to use whatever the baseline is pre-therapy, but get another sample um, three or six months on therapy, and that's probably more accurate. And it might change if someone gets an inflammatory illness. So it might go up if they become sick. So you have to be careful with that interpretation. So Kaiser uh, Permanente has published a paper suggesting that patients who start on an integrase with a high baseline CD4 uh, might not have excess cardiovascular risk. Do we know anything about the uh, level of immune activation or inflammation in the most modern era patients who are starting uh, with high CD4? Yeah, um, I, I'm certainly not an expert in that, and there are, I think people in the audience that could comment, but, but I, I do think that's correct, that, that the, the, low, the higher the nadir CD4, the less likely uh, you, you have with inflammation. There's some data in switch studies uh, from going from a boosted PI to an integrase that you actually see a decline in, in soluble CD14, for example. But actually, as far as I know, if you compare integrase with a boosted PI, like in the ACDG study, 5257, where they compared raltegravir to boosted darunavir or boosted adizanavir, there was no difference in terms of the uh, CD14 or uh, IL-6 response. I guess the question is, is there, is there are we at an era where there is no excess inflammation yeah, yeah. in modern patients starting on today's therapy yeah. compared to uninfected? Yeah, sure. I, I think we're getting a lot closer. I know that in the ACDG, we've tried to do studies where, where you have to have an abnormal D-dimer to get in or an normal IL-6 to get in, and all of a sudden we can't find those people. Susan's laughing over here, but she knows it's true. Um, so I, I think, um, I, I think it's, it's much less. Whether it's the same, I'm not sure. So here's a question that um, you, you sort of alluded to, but we all have these patients who have a, you know, a prior history of bad resistance. They're doing well. Uh, they're on four or five drugs. Uh, at what point are you taking the plunge? I think that's actually what they said here. Yeah. But, um, and, and redesigning the protocol based on integrase, uh, yeah. uh, especially the high barrier integrase. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm very, very careful about those switches, but I do feel uh, some uh, responsibility to my patients to try to limit both the toxicity and kind of the pill burden. So I think you can carefully, if you think carefully, for example, someone that's been suppressed for a long time on etrovirine um, and, and maybe only has a, a, a 103N in the past, maybe you can get them on the fixed dose combination of, of uh, ropivirine, TAF, FTC, so you reduce their pill burden there. Um, I certainly have. Um, uh, in, in some patients, uh, simplified from a boosted PI to dalutegravir because I think it does have that higher barrier to resistance. But I would be extremely careful in those patients because, and, and if you want to consult with, with someone who's a little bit more expert, I think it's a good idea because if you screw it up, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, the number of new agents is, is, is uh, 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 limited. Uh, they're promising, but th there's not a ton of them. We're not going to be rescued like we were in 2006 when we got raltegravir, darunavir, etrovirine. We're, we're not going to have that kind of rescue, I don't think. That's, I hadn't really thought of it, but I, I think um, 
you, you mentioned that it's hard for the drug companies to develop these new classes of drugs, but I think there would be a market. I mean, I think we would feel more comfortable making that kind of adjustment if we had both a, a, a potent integrase and another class yeah, of yeah, drugs. Sure. Uh, so I think that that might be a situation. And obviously, there are many patients uh, in yeah, that situation. Um, comment on lipid changes, uh, TDF versus TAF? Yeah, that's a really good question. So, uh, and I didn't mention it. With, with TAF, so tenofovir, tenofovir in the bloodstream, so the molecule tenofovir in the bloodstream actually has a lipid-lowering effect. Um, so it lowers total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, and actually lowers HDL a little bit. So the advantage to TAF is you get almost no tenofovir in the bloodstream, right? It, it's absorbed as TAF, and then it's quickly uh, then uh, uh, enters into cells, and that's where it's uh, changed into tenofovir and then to tenofovir, uh, tenofovir diphosphate. So um, with TAF, you don't see that kind of, quote, beneficial. I don't know if it's beneficial because all the cholesterol subsets go lower, right, including HDL. Um, but, but you don't see that uh, nice uh, cholesterol drop that you see with, with uh, TDF. Uh, I'm not sure clinically if it matters that much, but it is, it is true. Great. Thank you very much, yeah. Joe. That was great.